Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where I speak with creative entrepreneurs, artists, and other insanely interesting people to hear their stories, learn about their molding moments, tipping points, and spectacular takeoffs. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Jerome, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to me and to, you know, review the stuff that I'm doing these days. Yeah, my pleasure. So, you know, I came across you by uh, way of, uh, you know, you know, our former guest and mutual friend, Julian Smith, who seems to have a uh, pretty solid taste for the strange and unusual and outstanding um, when it comes to what's going on on the Internet, which is why I asked him for, for references and he gave me your name. So uh, can you tell us a, a bit about your background, your story and, and kind of the journey before the journey that has led you to the work that you're doing today? Yeah, totally. I mean, everything kind of bounces around in different spheres of connections. Uh, to go from Julian, how we know each other is from the quote-unquote body modification scene, everything that's tattooing, piercing, scarification. And what that world was in 1999 was very different than what it is today, the progression of the internet and the accessibility of the information. Um, so that's how he and I know each other. Um, and in terms of what would make my work strange and unusual, that is one of the elements in terms of what I have done as a body artist, in terms of using my body as art, um, as well as as a photographer, the people who I photograph. Um, my main definition in life as an artist and individual is photographer. I take photos of people. The people I shoot are real. Uh, there's always something that connects us, and that is what drives me to do what I do. Um, to go beyond that in terms of what makes me different, um, I've always had an interest in tribal uh, Aboriginal cultures. Uh, I grew up on National Geographic magazine. So for me to look at women with stretched necks and people with stretched earlobes or, you know, a bone in their septum, uh, that made more sense than, you know, anything that I saw as fashion in my own world. Um, at least in terms of what drives us all as human beings. I feel that modern technology has taken away from our bodies. Mm -hmm. We're very disconnected. We're very cerebral. And I think that this is something that you and I can discuss. Uh, but essentially, I think that my, my first explorations were with my body towards the outside world in terms of what gave me an understanding of myself as an individual. And I think that self-awareness, uh, to touch on any topics that we can discuss, whether it be business or art, Self-awareness is key to anything we do in life. And I think that that has always been my greatest drive was just, you know, to follow my curiosities, to explore the things that are out there and to see how that made me feel within my environment. If we use our five senses, you know, to, to interact with the outside world. Mm -hmm. So very wide answer. I mean, uh, in, in terms of um, who I am as a performance artist, um, I think that, for me to speak of myself, I end up being different characters. There's who I am as an individual. There's who I am as a photographer. And there's who I am or was as a performance artist, you know. Um, and what I say is 
to compare what I did back in the day as a performance artist is a little bit talking about, you know, Alice Cooper. He's Alice Cooper when he's wearing makeup on stage. But when you talk to him after the show, he's just Vincent Fournier and he likes baseball, you know, and golf. So uh, I, I think that I wear many different hats and uh, it is as much of a challenge as it is a joy to play within those different characters. Um, when I talk about myself, I talk about myself and it's very hard to separate who I am versus who the artist is and how people perceive me and what I do. Ooh, okay. So that's one of my hot buttons lately. So I, I do want to spend actually a significant amount of time talking about that, but let's get back to this idea of body modification. I mean, totally. that's a, that's a very unusual art form. You're probably the first person who I've had here really, who, who actually views, who has talked to me about body modification and tattoos as an art form. And, you know, one of the things that I'm always curious about is how sort of the, the primary starting point or foundational piece influences and shapes everything else in your life and in your world and, and how you see the world. So I'd love for you to talk about how, you know, sort of working through this, this idea of body modification, tattoos and changes has really shaped the lens through which you view the world um, as a creator, totally. as a professional as a person yeah it's 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 key to who i am and and what i've gone through um independent of reason or origin whatever it is within tribal cultures and aboriginal rituals that i identified with there's there is something you know and i'll say this as a white suburban north american you know um i saw something about tribal warriors that spoke to me more than just, you know, whatever you see on TV and, and whatever we see is, as popular culture. And I saw more value and depth in what those people did. Um, as, as simple as, you know, if we go back to, you know, maybe in the 90s, bungee jumping. Well, bungee jumping is awesome, but that comes from a ritual that has much greater significance. And I appreciate the nuance between what bungee jumping is as, you know, a Generation X thrill-seeking sport. But I also understand what it was for those warriors to actually, you know, tie vines around their ankles and jump off this crazy thing that they built for whatever reason that they did, you know. And for me to to know what tribe did what for what reasons is is secondary to what it was in terms of them exploring stuff. Um, I can jump into, you know, if we look at menstruation, I'm completely off topic, but for me, it's it's what I see our modern world versus, you know, what more tribal people are into we look at menstruation well within certain tribes there are boys that go through puberty that they don't understand why their body doesn't release blood that blood has something to do with life and all that so they have a ritual where they take these really sharp leaves and they shove them up their sinuses to bleed from their brain or sinuses or whatever and i look at that as a modern person and i'm like they're trying to tie into what the women are going through. And at least they're exploring something. As you know, somebody who has an awareness of medicine and science, I wouldn't be prone to sympathize with my girlfriend by shoving sharp leaves up my sinuses. But those things fascinate me. And I think that those have always been at the origins of who we were as you know, human beings exploring this planet. And I look at that as much fascinated that we've got satellites floating in space and we've put, you know, humans on the moon as much as, you know, the fire and the wheel still continue to fascinate me on a daily basis. And we forget the magic of those things. 
Um, so as much as I love my technology and tablets and phones and all that, I also look at wheels as fires, things that, that just continue to blow my mind on a daily basis. So wide answer. Um, maybe you can narrow me down in terms of where this can go. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. You know, one one of the things you said uh, at the very beginning was very early on in your childhood, and that's a very similar version of this question to a lot of people, is something about tribal cultures spoke to you. Yep. And, you know, I, I think that when I talk to people on this show, uh, that actually ends up being one of the common things. There is something that speaks to them that becomes the driving force behind the work that they do. Mm-hmm. And I think that we lose that as adults. And indeed, indeed. Very curious how we get it back. You know, I think the key is to never losing it in the first place. And that has been essential in my life. Um, what also go, I mean, to modernize things, I talk a lot about Aboriginal stuff and National Geographic, and that is twofold. Um, I remember seeing the rituals, but I also remember being fascinated by the photography. So I think that also had an effect on me later on because I saw some of the best images that the world had to offer through National Geographic. So, you know, thank them for uh, for doing some really quality stuff all that time, you know. But to bring it to a more modern thing, I look at rock and roll. If we look at the 70s or even before that, the, the 60s, you know, if you start with uh, Jimi Hendrix or you go to Led Zeppelin, then you go into like anything else that was more punk metal. And then you get into like my thing, which is metal. If you go from the early 80s, you know, Metallica, Slayer, and all that. And so you draw a parallel between rock and roll culture, sex, um, you know, the the kind of post-industrial apocalyptic, you know, thing that people were going through in the 90s of what Y2K was, of what 1999 was. I think there was a lot of magic in those years, and I think that also shaped me in a lot of ways. Um, and I say that, that we're all a product of our environment, and... I look at people that come from the 70s, and there's a certain flavor to who those people are. And I look at people from the 80s, and I can look at myself now with a little bit of perspective and go, you know what, I'm totally a product of the 90s and what that was. And it was a really magical time because, you know, we were to a certain degree the first ones seeing what the internet was. But, you know, I also go back to, you know, what, you know, if I talk about music, I remember sending $4 in international postage to Czechoslovakia to get a demo tape from an underground band. There was a magic feeling in that. And that is something that we lost now. Um, so I think no matter what, I've always followed counterculture and whatever you might consider to be underground things. And I've just always followed my own thing in terms of what was happening without having consciousness of it at the time. You know, we connect the dots later, but I think I was just at the right place at the right time for a lot of things. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you about this idea of product of environment. Uh, You know, this this is always one of those things that fascinates me because I always look at how our past influences, um, you know, the way we show up in the world today. And... In some cases, it serves us, and in others, it actually sabotages us. And I'm wondering, is it possible in your mind to overcome the parts that sabotage us, and if so, how? Great question. Um, Right. Well, you know, in terms of what sabotages us is, I think, the best way to answer that is is remaining true to yourself. Um, if If we look at the concessions that we make, and, and that is something that's progressive in the sense that I never had 
a career plan. I never expected my work to be what it became. It just kind of happened on its own. So I kind of followed it and it became an organic thing where I reacted to it and it reacted to me. And it kind of bounced back and forth as we went forward. Now, in terms of being an underground artist, um, there's, there's a lot of stuff that, let's say, you know, the things that I've done early on, you know, in my early 20s when it's a little bit more raw, um, I've always been very clear. I'm not going to be a politician, so those things would never, you know, in any way affect me in terms of what I want to do professionally as an artist. But if you Google me and you look at what I did early on in my career versus what I'm doing now, where do I want the emphasis to be? You know, and I think that's the evolution of an artist. Um, that you know, am I living up to the hype of what people think I was, or am able, or am I able to maintain who I am today and how I've evolved and what I'm doing now, and to keep interest in that? That there's always a tangent to what my voice is as an artist. That no matter what I do, it's always Jerome, and that I don't bend either way to what I think people want me to be doing. You know, it's interesting you bring that up because I think that there's there's a temptation to do that, isn't there? I, it's it's funny because I I mean I even wrote about this in my book. I said, you know, we keep basically watering down our work until it reaches the masses, and the very thing that made it so magical ends up being gone from it. I mean, I see this over and over again. Uh, you know, my favorite example of this is events. When people plan events, they somebody will start out with something very small and very intimate, and there's a magic to it. And the moment they say, you know what, I'm going to try to blow this up into something massive, the magic goes away. Agreed. And, you know, I mean, that that will touch base to, like, I don't know if I think about Burning Man. I don't think Burning Man is any less magical today. I've never gone. But I think that that magic of what it was initially is very different from, you know, people taking time off of work and booking their and, and planning everything out and going. Um, it's different today than it was then. Uh, another thing that I always, you know, and, and this is maybe the dialogue that I have with myself as an artist. I look at, let's say, musicians, because I have a background as a musician, and, and that's what I did before doing photography. Uh, to use Metallica as an example, I think that their first four albums were phenomenal. That's what Metallica is to me. Later on, it's just musicians using the name Metallica that just doesn't have the same fire as they did earlier on. You know, and I don't mean to knock them because they've they've had different things, and I think Metallica is doing some cool stuff today. On the flip side, though, if I look at David Bowie, you know, and in no way am I comparing myself to any of these people. I'm just reflecting upon this as as an artist who who must in, separate myself from what my career path is. I look at somebody like David Bowie, who he was in the '70s, is in no way similar to who he is today, but he remains David Bowie. And I think that anything that David Bowie has really done over the course of his career really lives up to, you know, this is what this man does, and he does it very well. And I think people that enjoy what he does will continue to enjoy his evolution as well. You know, I think he's been avant-garde in many ways. Um, So it's just in terms of my own challenges, that's what I hope to do. I hope to keep something magical in what I do and to really do it for myself. And if other people enjoy it, great. And I think that also touches something is I have become a business. Um, you know, if, if I do my photography and, you know, it's, it's mostly fine art. So therefore, my market is whatever I shoot. People want to potentially buy this and put it up on their wall. Um, so I'm always thinking, 
am I doing something that somebody would want to put on their wall? And I, you know, don't think I'm compromising because I look at it, would I myself want to put it up on my wall? So, you know, I try to satisfy myself just as much as I satisfy people. But then there are also other things where, like, you know, I, I like cinema a lot more than, let's say, I like magazines or fashion, if, if I can use that horizontal versus vertical thing as an image maker. Um, I've done a lot of really cool horizontal images where I've had to learn that when a magazine contacts me and they're like, hey, great image, we'd, use, we'd love to use it on our cover, do you have like a vertical version of that? I'm like, uh, no, we got to crop it. And it doesn't have the same magic. So now, as a businessman, every time I do something, I might be instinctively drawn towards shooting it horizontally, but then I'm thinking i got to cover my base and shoot it vertically just in case somebody wants to use it on a magazine. You know, am I making any compromise in terms of what I do? No, but I'm playing the game differently because there's different parameters um, influencing me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's interesting because I think it's it's absolutely a, a, an interesting balancing act of of creating what the audience wants, but creating what you want. You know, and I, I always think back to uh, you. Know, I, I saw Simon Cowell in this master class with Oprah, where he's talking about taste, and I think one of the fit, my favorite things that he said. He said, you know. He said, I basically think that if I like it, the audience will like it. Um, and that's Which isn't just, always true. Yeah. Yeah. As well. Um, so, no, it's, it's, it's a tough act to balance. I mean, some of my work that has been the best received is stuff that I didn't like, that just showing it to people around me, they're like, no, this is great. You've got you to gotta put it out there. And I think that also goes to show that um, as an artist, you can be positively influenced by the people around you just as much as you could be negatively influenced. You know, if you, you look at musicians that have bad managers or, you know, people that really have great producers, that can make a world of difference. And the reason why I mention that is I'm alone in everything that I do. And for me to reflect upon every single possible move of the chess game, yeah, it does become an exercise of administration of how I handle stuff, um, you know, and I'm, I'm honored that I get to reach out to people now and that I get to be, build up a team of mentors or people that I can, you know, reach out to as, as professional peers or, or whatever to get feedback on the work that I'm doing. And I guess, if anything, that also means that back in the day, I would just do what I did and I threw it out there. And now I'm filtering things because I want to make sure that I'm operating as intelligently as I can with the pieces of the puzzle that I have. Um, and, and that's been an interesting thing because I don't want to play a game, but I know that a game must be played because you can play it to your advantage or you can you know, just not follow the curve. Uh, so I think that's been interesting as well in terms of how I handle myself or, or how I plan things. Um, as an example, photo contests. Most of the photo contests start January, go until like May for the submission period and cover the work shot the year before. Well, now, you know, when I produce work, I'm like, okay, if I want to get into these photo contests and they have different categories, whether it be portrait or conceptual art or sports, in my head, I'm giving myself a checklist that if I want to move forward professionally, I should be submitting to these contests. And I know that I got to submit a lot before I actually ever get, you know, some mention somewhere, it's, it's statistics, it's probability. The more you participate, the more something will come out of it. Um, so it's therefore balancing my artistic production with my professional goals at the same time. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's been an interesting thing in, in terms of operating this as a business instead of just an art when it comes to my photography. 
Yeah, you know, it, it's funny because I think that um, we we sometimes neglect that, and it's it's also one of those things. I mean, I see often we will be tempted to sell sell out, you know, to some degree, uh, it, which I think will make a perfect setup for my next question. But I want to make a comment about this uh, about sort of you know knowing what the audience wants and, and figuring out what you want. And and you're right. I mean, there are times when I've done interviews here where I thought that was amazing and it didn't get the response that I thought would, and there are other times when I'm like this is shit, and people are like that was amazing. Um, it strikes a chord with people on different levels and we never know how and that that's part of the magic as well mm -hmm. yeah um and 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 if anything i'd like to maybe go take a tangent on this i'd like to say that anything that i have done artistically or professionally has always had a 33 percent of magic involved and i think that everybody has that magic in in anything that they do but I cannot take credit for anything that has happened or even the people that have been involved or helped or, or contributed in any way. There's always this random, this random element to anything that anybody does, you know, being at the right place, the right time, the right person seeing things. And I think that's part of the fun too, is no matter what I do, and, and this will go back to maybe something that Julian was saying, I don't know what I'm doing. I really don't especially based on the fact that I never had a career plan. I just wanted to take photos and I just wanted to take photos that I thought were interesting to me and they ended up being interesting to other people. But I don't know what I'm doing today any more than what I was doing before. I just have more confidence that I was like, hey, I made it this far by just kind of improvising and you know putting one foot forward in front of the next. So what happens when I start connecting the dots with intent and I think that's an important part of hours. anything we do uh, is always the intent that we have. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's important in terms of the drive. Um, so for you to go into, you know, selling out, um, there's some interesting stuff to cover on there if, if you wanted to ask that question. Yeah, let's get into that. But I want to ask you about two things before we do that. That, that kind of caught my attention. Um, one is, is sort of infusing everything we do with the magic and, and you know, um, you know, one, I want to know, you know, how do you make sure that you bring that to it on a consistent basis, that 33%? And then the other part, I want to get clear on how you connect the dots with intent. Like, what is, where does that start? Um, and, and what does that really mean? Right. I mean, in, in, in my path, how I've gone to where I'm at today, I think that I just kind of figured out that I built a niche market as, as I went. And that intent was to see what I could do for myself without in any way compromising, but also satisfy people. And uh, a funny example is early on in my career, I did, you know, a lot of freaky sex, drugs, rock and roll stuff, and I still had a normal job. Uh, and therefore I wasn't operating under my own name and I wasn't using dromerbrownwich.com. I came up with chapter9photography.com and set that up so people could not Google my name or find me. And the things that I did reacted to a wide audience of people who really liked the freaky stuff that I was doing. And I was also working as a bike messenger at the time. And I like bikes, and I think bikes are fun. So I've got a whole series of photos based on bike messengers and urban bike culture. And what happened over time, which I never expected, right? I was scared of hiding all the sex stuff, all the gay stuff, all the fetish S&M stuff from you know potential employers finding it and thinking that I would be an unsavory character and, and whatever. So I was trying to hide the sex stuff. But what happened was all the sex stuff ended up being my most popular work, you know, as much with men, women, straight, hetero, gay, whatever. And what ended up happening was all the freaks and perverts were sending me emails like, 
a lot of emails to the point where it's like, I can't believe this. And they're like, we don't care about all this bike stuff. What, what's up with all this bike messenger stuff? We don't like it. We want to see more naked, freaky, sexy people, you know, and like straight gay, whatever. So I was like, I never even saw that coming. I thought that the sex stuff could cause me problems when in the end it was, you know, the urban bike messenger culture that was a total turnoff to all the freaks and perverts who liked my wilder stuff. And I ended up creating a sub portal just for my bike messenger work going like, all right, if the only people who like this stuff is the bike crowd, I'll do something just for them and feed that and not mix the sex with the bikes. Because in my head, in my world, these are the things that I like and if you like bikes and you like sex, you might like what I do. Um, but it was, it was an interesting thing for me to reposition myself, quote unquote, professionally to subdivide certain things. And also, you know, when, when I do anything as well, um, I'm, I'm straight. But being involved in the fetish community, everybody around me is poly, gay, whatever, you name it. All the variations out there are people that I consider friends. So when I do work, I'm also thinking, you know, am I doing stuff to satisfy the gay market? I do stuff with sexy women. I'd like to do stuff with sexy men to, you know, diversify that for my crowd. Um, and then it's just a question of putting intent into, you know, what I pr- prioritize. Mm-hmm. So let's do this. Let's uh, let's shift gears a little bit. And sure. um, you know, I want to talk uh, about two different things. One is you, know, you mentioned a background in music, and I, I didn't want to let that slide because I'm always fascinated by musicians having been a tuba playing band geek in high school who never got to be a cool musician, uh, which is probably, you know, I'm sure you as a musician were much cooler, but music has always fascinated me. I'm really curious how, uh, you know, your background as a musician has shaped and influenced the stories you choose to tell and, and you know, your, your work as an artist. You know what? It, it's cool because the two things that I'll identify this being an interview where I need to speak and use words is I consider myself a man of sounds and images, right? So, Music speaks to me in any language, and images speak to me no matter what they are. And, and I find that there's something in those visual and musical art forms that stimulate my brain in a way that I don't master with words. Um, and what you were saying about cool or uncool, I devoted much of my adolescence to heavy metal music. And when I say heavy metal, I'll go from heavy metal to classical to blues to jazz to, to you name it. If it's good music and it's intelligent and it's played by great musicians, I want to learn from it. And I tried to mix a little bit of everything in what I did musically. But I didn't think I was any good. I was very good technically. I could play classical music. I could play metal note for note. But I'd listen to bluesmen or or jazz players, and what they can get out of one note was more than what I feel I could transmit to the instrument. And, you know, things happen as they do. My band broke up. My high school band broke up. And I ended up just being a guy with a guitar. It was a lot more fun to play in a band and to jam with people than just to play solo. And I didn't think it was doing anything that good. And it was at the same time that I started doing photography because I was taking photos of the band for, you know, promo material and all that. So, you know, I was, I was doing photography before I picked it up in college and before I consciously dedicated myself to it. But I felt that I was better at storytelling with photography. Photography, for me, to get back to that 33% of magic, there is something about capturing that moment in time whether it be a literal, you know, recreation of an event that has happened, as it is the way we see with news footage. You know, if you look at, you know, classic Viet Cong execution shot from, you know, the, the, that time period, we all know what that image is and, and that is striking um, versus other things that capture a moment in time that can be false and can be theatrical. Um, so I just started looking at things as storytelling 
uh, telling people's stories and perhaps telling my own through those people. And I think that's where the connection comes to music is good music makes us feel stuff, talks to us, gets a gut reaction. And what I've always wanted to do with my photography is just to freeze that person for that one extra second and get them to look at the image and question it. Whatever it, it stimulates within them, if I've done that, then I think that I've done something good as a photographer. So that's, that's kind of part of what my drive is in terms of making my images and how I want it to talk to people in terms of telling a story or, or making them reflect upon things. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's funny. I think the, the way you see photography and, and the way you tell stories is the way I see interviews. I want people to feel something when they've listened Indeed. to this. <laughs> what are people feeling now? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, and, and this is also the question. I mean, we haven't covered any of the earlier stuff that I did. 
that might also put in context of why my photography is different. You know, right now I'm just talking in very general terms, and I think that if people are not visualizing the photos, then they might not see what is of interest about what I'm saying. So maybe that is something else that we can get into. If you yeah, want to absolutely. Let's, uh, well, let's dig into that. Tell me, let's, let's just start dissecting it. I mean, tell me a bit more. I mean, I think that that's really uh, where we'll go next. And then we can start talking about some of the other stuff that I'm, I'm curious about. Yeah. I, I think what I can do is I can even volunteer the, the struggle of my multiple, uh, my multiple facets as an artist. You know, if you Google sure. me, Different aspects come up, and I want to prioritize different things for different reasons. Um, My involvement in the body modification scene, like circa late 90s, early 2000s, specifically, there was a a very underground event called ModCon, which was basically this very hardcore underground conference where, um, you know, people from around the world would gather who had similar interests, whether it be extreme fetishes or, you know, literally underground surgery. And a lot of stuff happened at those events. And, and basically what it was, it was on invitation only. And you had to be heavily modified. And by heavily modified, we're talking about, you know, full tattoo work or being burned or covered in scars or, you know, even to the point of implants and amputation. I think people have seen a little bit of what that was. But it was really, really underground. And, and there were certain risks in terms of gathering all these people. And, you know, again, what happened at some of these events? We're talking about practicing medicine without a license. Um, I've seen some very interesting things that I never expected I would possibly see that, you know, if, if you just Google ModCon or if you pick up the book, you'll see some of what those procedures were. Um, so I kind of connected with this whole gathering and as a younger person, you know, um, I was in my early 20s at the time and the age range was pretty much like 18 to mid 80s and I was one of the youngest and the reason why I was invited to this conference was because I was burned from head to toe in terms of what I had done to myself in terms of traditional scarification. Some people get tattooed, some people get piercings. My thing in terms of what I identified with as a tribal warrior was third-degree burns. So I am covered in head to toe, uh, from head to toe in third-degree burns. Uh, my body is scarred. There is a reason as much aesthetic as personal to what those rituals were. Um, I had implants, so what we now consider as a 3D art form. Uh, just like tattooing or piercing, I had some implants under my skin, Teflon, titanium. And uh, the other thing, two other things that, that made it of interest at that point was um, I cut off my finger in 1998, a.k.a. I literally one night consciously cut off my pinky finger. And um, some people don't, even today, they don't understand the nuance between what is real and what they think might be Photoshop. But if you see photos of my hand online, with a missing finger or if you see the fingertip itself that is because that was one of the things that I did just to see what I could explore as mind over matter and I'm writing a book about that so that's got its whole chapter to itself um so all those things are what culminated to me being at the ModCon conference and uh at some point in time what I had seen at those conferences were there were men straight and gay men doing scrotal saline injections And literally what they do is the same saline that you get as an IV drip at the hospital. They just take that, they plug it into their scrotum, and they get a scrotum that's as big as a basketball. And it's a thrill for these guys, either aesthetically or for the sensation of it. Some of them wear tights and go out to the mall. Um, And I was like, absolutely, I've seen my share of stuff. 
But that, to have seen that live, I thought, wow, that was pretty neat, even though I had no personal interest of injecting my scrotum. Um, <laughs> you know, like, it's neat, but it's just not my thing. That being said, as an artist, and again, I've done some really freaky hardcore stuff, but I think the most important key that I need to emphasize right now is I have a crazy sense of humor. I have a really, really weird sense of humor. And that affects a lot of the art that I do, that some of it is very serious, like the amputation. You know, that that had clear thought and intent, and that is something that I thought about for a long time. We can get into that as well if you have specific questions. But there are other things that I do with a sense of humor that people can't nuance what is what. And all this to say that after seeing the scrotal injections at the ModCon, I was like, well, if these guys are injecting their scrotum and it's a sexual thing or whatever, what's stopping me from injecting anything anywhere else? And being a Star Trek fan, maybe, (laughs) sci-fi, I thought, what if I injected my forehead right behind the hairline? See what happens. You know, I've got people that are doctors. I I know people that have medical knowledge. I did my research. That's also very important. Uh, Kids don't try this at home. Um, I was very well surrounded in terms of getting the proper knowledge. And I think that in anything you do in life, being properly informed is key, whether it be buying a house or cutting off your finger or injecting your forehead. Um, Do your research. And if it makes sense to you, go for it. But that being said, I thought it would be hilarious to inject my forehead. So I did. (laughs) <laughs> and I showed up at a friend's house one day, uh, just like, hey, uh, let's go out for, for a drink and, and have a smoke. Like, let's grab a cigar or something. And I showed up at his place wearing a suit, wearing a suit, but with my forehead inflated. And that started off as a joke. It just started off as a joke. And, you know, this in, to get to this point now, it started off as a joke and landed me in the Guinness Book of World Records to the point where the editor of the book created a new category as I was the only person in the world doing this. So the world's largest forehead inflation, well, that's my record. That says Jerome Abramovich in the Guinness Book of World Records, but it started off as a joke. And the elements of that joke, you know, aren't entirely public, and I'll I'll get into that at some other point in time. But it's just me having a really weird sense of humor, thinking, hey, if I can do this, and and to be very honest, it hurts. It really hurts. Um, but I'm able to support the pain for a good joke. And uh, it, that had a life of its own. You know, That spawned its own trend in uh, Tokyo and Osaka, where people line up to do this in clubs. It's like a rite of passage for some Japanese now. Um, and yet, they're doing it to be cool. I did it as a joke. So, you know, things happen as they do. And so all that to come back to where I am now as a professional, as a photographer, as somebody who likes to take interesting photos, if it wasn't for any of that, I don't think I would have had the success that I've had on the internet. And the internet has been very kind in terms of, you know, you you look at anything in Tumblr or Pinterest or you just Google anything. My stuff has gone viral. But these are things that go back 10 years. And any of this performance art that I've ever done, you know, uh, I can I can send you stuff or I can post stuff to my website if people want to check it out. Uh, I've done my fair share of TV interviews, you know, from Ripley's Believe It or Not to the Learning Channel to talk shows like Ricky Lake. I've done stuff in Germany, Japan, wherever, Australia. They always want to put the emphasis on the freak factor. They're like, Jerome Brownwich, body modification guy, forehead, blah, blah, blah. But I always insist on whatever contract I can have. I'm like, can you guys just say somewhere? 
photographer and body artist or body <laughs> artist and photographer because this is the nuance and I think that these are interesting things to discuss. I personally don't care about being on TV. I'm not the kind of person. I'm very low profile. I like to be discreet. I like the fact that I can go to the grocery store and people don't know who I am. I like that. Um, but the fact is media has always been like, hey, look at this guy. And even though I'm not into that, it's to my interest to be like, hey, if you guys want to talk about that, can you just post a link to my website saying I'm a photographer? And if that gives me, you know, a, a widestream, mainstream audience, if I'm on TV and it says Jerome Abramovich, Chapter 9 Photography, I always looked at that as, you know, any publicity is good publicity, but you're, you're compromising to a certain degree. So, yeah, that's been a difficult choice. That I am who I am. I don't hide any of that. I'm proud of the things that I've done, and they entirely make me who I am. But how the media plays with it, they've always wanted to put the emphasis on Jerome, the guy with the forehead who did this or that. I'm like, who wants to talk about the photos? Who wants to take a deeper look at the people in my photos? This is the other thing. When I talk about that 33%, I'll take a 33%. You know, what I bring to the direction, I look at myself like a director with actors. Um, I look at myself as being one-third of that puzzle, and the people that I shoot are the other third. Because if I was just a product photographer taking photos of lipstick for L'Oreal or taking photos of boots for a boot manufacturer, then I would need to be totally awesome technically, and I'd be, I'm the most awesome technician, and those are the best boot photos you've ever seen, and that's me. But I can't say that for my work because I'm just the guy who chooses when I go click and what people give to me and what they give me as trust in that moment that I go click is, is really the biggest piece of my puzzle for me. If, if, I, if I break it down to a triangle of 33%, I still give the greatest credit to the people in my photos because they are real. They are what, you know, they are the people who allow me to do the work that I do because I just want to tell their stories more than my own. And I think that's an interesting thing is where do you draw the line between putting the focus on me and, and my path and what I'm doing versus giving, you know, me wanting to put them in the forefront. Um, so, yeah, those, those are interesting things that I've had to explore in terms of what my path that, you know, I've kind of gone thrown left, right and center, juggling all kinds of different concepts and my intent has always been to bring it back to, you know, the main narrative of my work. And, and it's difficult because when you get, you know, media attention, you go with it, but you can't always control how it goes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, fascinating stuff. And I'm really glad we got into this. Actually, you know, the part of it that interests me, believe it or not, more than anything is the mind over matter piece. I mean, burning your yes. body, um, you know, cutting off fingers. I, I really want to, because to me, that's, that's actually a really powerful skill set. You know, mind over matter to me is one of those things that honestly is an essential skill to navigating the world uh, of uncertainty that we live in today. Yes. And you know what? It's two things. It's mind over matter. It is believing in yourself and having the awareness. Now, I think when I say believing in yourself and having awareness is understanding that we are all different. We all have our own magic, you know, and that as well for me as a person and as an artist, I think everybody's interesting if you really have a chance to dig into who they are. So that makes it fun for me. I just like to meet people and see what I can find of them. Um, But, you know, so when you take self-awareness with mind over matter. Um, I think that my personal explorations, just to generalize, have always been dealing with obstacles, any obstacle in life. You know, you hit a wall 
And I think that we have all hit walls, no matter what. I, perhaps as an artist or as a non-businessman, has hit different walls. But we all have those walls in our life. And I think I'll take this tangent to say, yeah, I can talk about all this Aboriginal stuff, but I can also get into like any other modern, you know, psychology of, you know, getting things done or, you know, taking initiative or being an entrepreneur. I have mixed all that in terms of when you hit a wall, you got to pick yourself up and you got to keep moving, you know? And I think that's what differentiates all kinds of people. You know, some people will hit a wall and they'll stay stumped and not know what to do with. And I don't know any more what to do with that wall. Um, but I know that what makes the difference between me obtaining my goals, and this is only about me obtaining my goals, is about picking myself up and moving forward. Um, an interesting thing, let's go back to the finger, as I haven't talked about this in a while, and maybe we, we can get back into this. Um, I did my research in terms of various Aboriginal things, and you know, stretching my neck with rings was not what I was going to do, and you know, blah, blah, blah. I can be silly about this, but there is something about amputation that I identified with. Because as a scientist, this is not about subtraction. It is about transformation. Nothing in life, atomically or otherwise, is ever created or destroyed. It is only transformed. And this is where it's fun for me to be an artist and to be a scientist. And that was for me. And, and you know, I talk about Aboriginal stuff, but I haven't even gotten into the cybernetics. Luke Skywalker gets his arm cut off, gets a robot arm instead. That was a generation or two generations ago. And now if you literally Google Luke Skywalker arm, there is, you know, a robotics company in the U.S. who got like 40 million or something to develop this very cool robotic arm. Part of this whole thing was not only for me to go how far and very, very important that I mentioned, I had never taken drugs up until that point. And I was not interested in alcohol. So I, I guess you can call what I was, was straight edge. But I, I just didn't have any interest in altering my body or my mind with exterior substances. I was more interested in doing it internally. And I say that in terms of meditating and lying on a bed of nails and all that. And there's all these you know, reasons why people cut off fingertips um, in, in Aboriginal cultures. And one of them that related to my mindset was the concept of grief. Um, in Indonesia, if I'm not mistaken, women in a tribe, each time a family member dies, they chop off a digit, and that person gets buried with the digit. And if the king or, um, you know, the king of the tribe dies and everybody cuts off a finger, and, like, they get buried with a pile of fingertips. So fascinating stuff. But there was a concept of that, of grief, but also for me to explore this is not subtraction, this is transformation, because, you know, this is me using my sense of humor, but also being very scientific about it. Um, I wear glasses, and uh, without my glasses, I see nothing, I'm nearsighted. So in the near future, I'd love to get laser eye surgery and figure about $4,000 for that, right? But if I had a couple million dollars, like Dr. Evil, and I could get my eyeballs removed and put cameras instead, get night vision heat sensor, zoom lens. Well, why be human if you can be more than human? You know, you look at the exoskeleton suits in uh, Avatar. You know, you just get in this robot and it's, it's putting on like a pair of pants and a coat and you've got this robot suit now. Well, that's going to happen in our timeline. You know, we're not going to have flying cars or who knows what's going to happen with that. But exoskeleton suits will happen 
over my timeline. And I just say that in the sense that I'm curious and I can run, I can jump, I can do all kinds of stuff now. But when I'm 70 or 80, will I be able to run and jump the same way I can now? Logically not, but hopefully if technology keeps going the way it does, if I just look at my cell phone versus the computer I bought for $5,000 a couple years ago, um, maybe I can get a $5,000 exoskeleton suit by the time I'm 70. So that ties into part of the reason why I want it. But anyways, all that to say, I wanted to see if I could cut off my own finger. One night, my friend Pierre calls me up and he's like, hey, Jerome, do you want to go see a movie? I'm like, no, cutting off my finger tonight. How about tomorrow? He's like, what? I'm like, yeah, what, what are you going to go see? Like, maybe we can catch that tomorrow night instead. <laughs> He's like, dude, what the fuck? Are you really going to cut off your finger? I'm like, yeah, hey, I got everything ready. So, um... And he's like, well, aren't you going to bleed to death? I'm like, no, people don't usually, so should be fine. And he's like, well, call me back afterwards. Just make sure you're not dead. So I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> Enjoy your movie. <laughs> and, and this is me casually. Pierre knew that it was going to cut off my finger, but I'm like, yeah, yeah, tonight I'm going to do it, you know. And again, no drugs, no alcohol. And all this to say about the unexpected. I'm right-handed, and I cut off the last digit of my right-hand pinky. The reason being, I still play guitar, and even if I'm right-handed, it's my left hand that's on the guitar neck. So I wanted to keep all those fingers. I'm not a flamenco player, so I didn't really need that last one. I did my research. You know, It's like your thumb's worth 40% of your hand. Your index is 20. Your middle finger is 20. The others are 10 so by taking off one-third of that 10%, I lost 3% of my dexterity. Seriously, the only thing I've lost is the ability to reach to the letter P on my keyboard and the enter. <laughs> I didn't see that. I pretty much projected everything else, and it's fine for biking, weightlifting, whatever. But all that to say, I'm right-handed. Therefore, I set up a system where I kind of had a guillotine with a kitchen knife, and I put my finger under it, and I got all the other fingers out of the way. But the only way to cut off my right-hand finger was to lift something heavy with my left hand and smash it on a knife and try to, like, leverage it, right? I'm not left-handed, so I practiced smashing this big, heavy metal brick thing just on a phone book. I'm like, all right, I think I got the mechanics of my left arm. I am now ready. So it's not even mind over matter. I'm like, I'm not left-handed. This is awkward. (laughs) So I'm struggling with not being a left-handed person versus I'm going to cut off my finger. That being said, I'm not a spiritual person. I I believe in spirituality more than religion, but I I do believe in energy. I don't understand it. I'm curious, but I don't understand it. That being said, anything that I always do, I only do it if I'm really convinced it's a good idea. And I kind of brought myself to being in a trance just by breathing deeply. And I sent a question out to the universe. And I asked the universe, I'm like, is this the right thing to do? Am I making a mistake? Should I do this? Yes or no? And the answer came back. It was really weird. The answer came back. Yeah, sure. Go ahead. So I was like, oh, cool. I got an answer. It was positive. There's like, no doubt. Cool. Go. So I lift up my left hand. I smash down this big thing on a knife. And I'm like, ah, cut off my finger. I actually did it. Lift the knife. And my body's in shock, but my mind's not, right? So my, my body's kind of panicking, but my mind's not. I lift the knife. I look at it. I only kind of got like 80% through the bone. There's still tendon on the underside. So my lesson being, I had prepared everything to cut off my finger. I just didn't expect that I had to do it twice. <laughs> so here I am in shock, but fascinated and looking at my finger and it's dangling. I'm like, oh, geez, I didn't do a great job. I've never done this before. I, I should finish it. So I had to line everything up, put it back under the knife. And the second time was easier. So like, boom, bang. So it done. And 
So my fingertip is floating a few centimeters away from my actual finger, and my brain is looking at it, and I swear, my brain is looking at it, and I'm like, move, come on, you can do it, move, just, just a little bit. You know, like what you see of people who are like supposedly handicapped, spinal injury, can't move their toes, and I like, move your toes, if you can move your toes, then you're okay, right? And I'm like, I wanted a remote-controlled finger. Yeah, until anybody proved that you couldn't do it. I was just, and, and that wasn't the whole point. But at that point, I was curious. So I was, I was experimenting with that. But it was a really interesting thing that my body went into shock. And it was trying to send signals. There was phantom pain. There were things that I didn't understand. But my conscious mind throughout the entire thing was like, hey, cool. You did it. You, you wanted to see if you could do it. You can do it. So just wrap things up and all that. And it was as much artistic in terms of the photos that I wanted to take and statement. And I, I'd say it was a personal exploration beyond anything, but for sure the photo has value. And for me as an individual, to say casually, even now, more than 15 years later with a sense of humor, I'm like, yeah, I cut off my finger. I was curious. Um, but the cool thing is to get into something very intellectual, try to describe red to somebody who was born blind. You can't. If we talk about love or God, I can talk about love, you can talk about love, I can talk about God, you can talk about God, but they're very abstract concepts and there is no way scientifically to prove that I believe in God or that I actually love somebody. You just got to believe it. And this is the interesting thing as quote-unquote a scientist, but a very tribal caveman, whatever, I go back and forth between the curiosity of what does any of this mean, you know? And I'd like to think that I've never been afraid of my own mortality. I'm like, I'll die when I'll die and people will be sad, you know? I'm more, I'm more afraid of injury, you know, like, you know, knee ligament damage, not being able to walk. And, you know, it's like, let's just do something else. Even as, as a visual artist, I'm like, if I lose my eyes, I'll make music, I'll sing. You know, so that, that is an interesting thing. It has also allowed me to see that anything can happen and no matter what happens, I'll just do something else. And, and that was part of it. But again, to draw the tangent, um, we, we can Google who the name is. She was on Ellen, but there was a woman who was born blind, uh, sorry, born deaf and she got a hearing implant and it went viral on the internet and basically they flick on the switch and she starts crying because she can hear herself. And there's this whole thing about that, and that is key to what I've explored, is we think we know what we know about our five senses, but I've always been curious that there's got to be more. I don't know what it is. There's energy. People feel things. People see things. Our brains allow us to tap into things that we don't yet master. But my whole point is, what if someday, and, and this is going back to the Luke Skywalker thing, what if we have USB wings? You know, you just have a USB port or memory thing like Johnny Mnemonic and you plug in an SD card and you got like 180 gigs of memory, download, you know, the martial arts program. But again, just to get back into the reality, this, this woman was born deaf. She gets a hearing aid uh, on one side, so unidirectional. And later on, she was invited to the Ellen DeGeneres show and Ellen hooked her up with the other implant. And what the story is after that, this woman learned to hear. So she's walking down the street and she hears an ambulance. She's like, oh, there's an ambulance. But because she has no sense of perception, she does not know where this ambulance is coming from, where you and I might be able to be like, oh, it's coming from the West. It's coming this way. So even within the five senses that we have, this woman can now hear, but she needs to develop perception. 
In the same way, people were born blind, and now we are replacing eyeballs, retinas with cameras that we can just, again, connect them to whatever nerves in the brain and, and all that scientific stuff that I don't master. I'm more of a conceptual philosopher, even though I've practiced certain things. But you can literally get somebody who is born blind, hook them up with this technology, and make them navigate a maze. They won't walk into a wall, they'll navigate the maze. So imagine to the point where these same people would benefit of an H. HD camera where they have full color spectrum where they could have night vision and heat sensors more than we could because, well, hey, might as well give it to them. Um, so those are the things that have always fascinated me. And that was one very small part of cutting off the finger was I understand the reverse engineering of that phantom pain. And if you look at Robocop, let's say that, you know, I happen to have re-seen something go by, Robocop was just a brain, a face, some lungs, and a hand. But the whole point is you are still you. And that has been a big part of my explorations is when do we stop being ourselves? You know, if, if my grandfather has a pacemaker, he's still my grandfather. He's got, you know, circuitry helping his heartbeat. And as we replace those parts, if I replace my arm and I get an exoskeleton, am I still Jerome? And how long will I still be Jerome? Mm -hmm. And those are things where I'm like, forget the photography because, you know, everybody's a photographer now. Maybe I'll be generating holograms like in Minority Report four years from now professionally. So I don't know where I'll go professionally or artistically, but I do know that there are fascinating things that will happen in our lifetime that I will always be curious about whether it falls into my professional or personal, you know, timeline. You know, the very beginning of our conversation, uh, we had this talk about sort of our identities as uh, the artist versus the person, right? Uh, like separating sort of the person versus the persona. And this is something that, you know, I've been thinking a lot about lately as, as our brand has evolved. And as, you know, w one of the experiences I had was that um, I was at an event and people knew about the unmistakable creative, but they didn't know my name, which I was actually very right. happy about because that means that the brand has evolved beyond me. But yes. this is actually a very important subject. I mean, it, it's it's sort of, you know, distinguishing between those two things and, and really um, – I think that to some degree we do have to distinguish between those things, but also sh still showing up in the world authentically and, and, you know, like choosing our moments of being vulnerable. I mean, I'd love to hear your insight on all of this, given everything that you've been through. Yeah, totally. Because I mean, on, on many regards, I've had interesting personal adventures that have brought me up and down in life. I've had interesting professional adventures that have brought me up and down in life. And we're always trying to adapt to what that is. And it's, you know, I, I think, um, have you heard the Neil Gaiman address that he did maybe like a year and a half ago? I think so, yes. Okay. Anyways, uh, he said something in there about, you know, just whatever your mountain is and going for it and also whatever hardships that we are, you know, your cataclysms and dies make good art. Um, but there's something to be said about that. And in my, in my path, what has been difficult is I've had setbacks that completely prevented me from making my art because I had realities, whether they be financial or otherwise, to deal with. And that's just not the time to be like, yay, I'm going to make art. But whatever it is that you feel at that moment, that does not go away. And anything that I've experienced in life, those are all recorded in, you know, whatever element of my cortex that the next time that I have the opportunity to make art, which is actually at this point in my life that I've dealt with a few of the business setbacks or financial issues or whatever, where I have the ability to pursue my art, I'm able to take that raw power and put it into there. 
And there's different aspects to it, you know, for, for me to say in an interview, I've had setbacks and therefore I wasn't creating art and now I've overcome them and I am creating art and oh my God, it's going to be visceral. It is going to be visceral because I have the ability to do one I didn't before. Um, and I think another thing is, you know, if, if we look at, you know, what you're uh, addressing in, in your overall thing about the instigator, it's been an interesting thing for me that I've never deliberately set out to shock anybody. No, no more with cutting off my finger than inflating my forehead than any of the photos that I took. But I'm just being myself. And myself and the things that I do and the people that I surround myself with could be shocking for certain people and are definitely shocking for the mainstream. Um, and, you know, again, if I look at, you know, I'll use, let's say, The Matrix as an example, uh, the movie that came out in 1999. When that came out and you saw, you know, let's say Trinity wearing the latex suit, that was pretty badass. Now, if you see, let's say, Rihanna wearing a latex suit, nah, been there, done that. You know, so certain things have different impacts at different time. And I think that a lot of the things that I covered either in my work or my own explorations were unseen or unknown to larger audiences and the internet exploding the way it did expose that to people. Um, so it's, it's always a question that I've just done what I've done knowing that, you know, and again, like, you know, what I said about the sex fiends not enjoying the bike work in my portfolio, that was very strange. But it's also a question that I know that maybe some of the straight people might not like seeing the gay-themed work that I do. But then it's hypocritical because how many quote-unquote straight people have fantasies of lesbians, of two women together, but as soon as you show two men together, it makes them feel very uncomfortable. In that regards, yeah, I'm going to mess with my quote-unquote straight audience. If you like seeing sexy women in my portfolio, you're not going to be able to do so without maybe seeing some men together. And maybe that'll make you reflect on maybe this is all the same and we're all people and we all have desires. Um, so in that sense, maybe I look to provoke people in certain ways. Um, but I think people end up provoking themselves with stuff. And I think that's been a card that I've played. I'm like, I'll let people react to my stuff, even though I may, it, it may or may not strike that chord with them. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, Drum, this has been just, absolutely fascinating uh definitely now i know why julia when i asked julian i said i need you to find me somebody who's got a really really crazy story that's unusual and i'm i'm now i'm really understanding uh you know why he sent you my way uh so i want to wrap things up with one uh sort of final question that we close all our interviews with um and you clearly i think in, in numerous ways really embody this based on the art that you've chosen to create and the way you show up in the world what is it that you think makes somebody or something unmistakable the authenticity of it. See, that's the easy question that I've had to, to <laughs> answer. Thank you. I think that, you know, the biggest compliment that I could give myself that I've never expected, and I think I'll touch base on a few things. I didn't, I didn't like my name growing up, Jerome Abramovich. You know, it doesn't sound very Hollywood, if I can say. And we all know that artists come up with artist names or DJ, whoever, right? And in the metal scene, people always had cool names. And as a metal guy, I was like, I'm going to come up with, you know, the artist formerly known as Prince. And I think I went back and forth for years, even as a musician as, or when I started photography. I wasn't comfortable with my own name because I was fearful that my potential employers would find out what I was doing on my own time, you know. And it got to a point where I realized, hey, you know what? I'm Jerome Abramovich. That's who I am. 
and I'm different from everybody else. And in this day right now, if somebody says Jerome Abramovich, whatever that means, whether it means my finger, my forehead, the art or the people that I surround myself with, it can mean all of that. But I think no matter what people say, it's applicable. It's usually fair. Um, I'm usually quite proud of who I am and what I've done. And um, I think that anybody that I look up to professionally or artistically has been that, is they have been themselves. Um, you know, for what I know of you, you are you, and you do what you do, and, and that's why it's interesting, in the same way that Julian does what he does. And I, I think that that's what makes anybody unmistakable, is just being themselves and, and following that voice no matter what. And I think uh, this also, you know, this touches into the entrepreneurial stuff because I've, you know, not been trained as a businessman and I've had to train myself as a businessman to succeed, you know, um, is that in any business, there are crazy setbacks. And the only difference between the people that are successful and not successful is the successful people crash and burn just as much as everybody else. And it sucks for all of us equally. But it's those that pick themselves up and keep believing in it and that keep have that fire and passion no matter what. And I think for me, with the life that I've had, the only thing that has been clear for me is I need to create. You know, I might be an architect someday. I'm fascinated by furniture. I want to design lamps and tables. I don't have the qualifications right now, but hey, give me a saw and some stuff and I'll see what I can do. But I just have a burning desire to create. And I think that in anybody, as long as that desire is still there, and that also touches to, to remaining youthful. You know, I've been surrounded by people that are 20, 30, 50, 80. They don't have an age. They might have a physical age, but all the people that surround me, they all have that same fire. And you can't put an age to that. If anything, I'd say I think all those people are childish and have a sense of humor on top of that. So I think that's, that's all very important to being unmistakable. Amazing. Um, well, Jerome, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share yeah. some of your insights with our listeners here at the unmistakable creative. This has been absolutely fascinating. Thank you. And you know, I, I think that, you know, for me again, to put things in perspective that I'm a visual artist, I'm a guy that likes to make sounds. <laughs> um, you know, I'm more comfortable making noises than I am trying to assemble words. And that was extremely awkward. Uh, but see, I took a risk. <laughs> it wasn't a very good one for me to say I've got an interest in metal. That, that was pathetic. Sorry, I'm a little bit rusty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that makes a perfect way to, to sum up our conversation. And uh, for those of you guys listening, we'll wrap the show with that. You've been listening to the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. Visit our website at unmistakablecreative.com and get access to over 400 interviews in our archives. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A malibu.com, code GLOW. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. 
Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.